Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, at two minutes past seven, we're going to make a slow start this evening. Um, we have got other people um, joining us. Um, my name's Sophie um, from Simply Learning Tuition and uh, welcome to our autumn uh, winter webinar series. Um, the second one in our in our series this um, this term. Um, this evening, uh, Simply Learning Tuition's founder and director, Nathaniel McCullough, will be speaking to Amari Eccleston-Brown ahead of the release of Amari's new book, The Secret to Happy Homework. Nathaniel founded Simply Learning Tuition in 2009 after working as a private tutor in London. He was inspired to help children who didn't find learning easy and took a particular interest in mentoring and tutoring for common entrants. Nathaniel now focuses on advising parents and working with head teachers and other educationalists in the UK and overseas. He has sat on the Tutors Association panel for continuing professional development and is a key supporter of the development of enhanced standards in private tuition. Nathaniel is a trustee of a, a new charity called Tutor for the Nation, where university students are providing free tuition for children from disadvantaged backgrounds. So far, 30,000 hours have been delivered since the school closures. Amari is known fondly as the homework guru to his clients. He has helped hundreds of parents and children transform their experience of homework and reach their true potential. He is an international tutor, author, speaker, and the creator of the Happy Homework System. Every year, his students improve their grades and are accepted to the most prestigious and competitive institutions in the UK, among them Eton, Westminster, and Oxford, just to name a few. We have, we've worked with Amari for several years, and every parent we introduce him to is, introduce him to is delighted. Um, I'll leave Nathaniel to take things um, from here. There will be time for a Q&A towards the end of the webinar where we'll open up the um, call for questions. If you'd like to ask any questions in the chat function as we go along, please do and we'll address them at the end during the Q&A. Thank you. Over to you, Nathaniel. Thanks very much, Sophie. Um, well, I really wish as a tutor um, I'd had Omari's help um, a long time ago. It was one of the, the biggest challenges that I found um, as, a, as a private tutor was helping children to, to really feel motivated and excited about homework, which is, I suspect, a, an issue for many people listening this evening. Um, and I, I think also if it sort of gave me memories of my own homework problems and finding it either too difficult or you know, not feeling I could do it particularly well. Um, or in some cases, just feeling it was unfair and, and the wrong thing. Um, that I've been given. So I'm really looking forward to this. I think we're going to get lots and lots of good advice. Um, so Amari, can we can we perhaps start? I'd really like to know. Um, I read I read your book. I loved it. I, I really did find a, a great balance of sort of new information, um, confidence, sort of building ideas. Uh, it's just fantastic stuff. Um, but one thing we haven't discussed really is what you know what prompted you to write this? What, what, why did you write it and who's it, who's it really aimed at? Yeah, thanks Daniel and thanks Sophie for a really lovely introduction there. And um, yeah, so I wrote the book because, I mean, I've been working as a tutor for the best part of 10 years and I kept on seeing the same problems crop up. I kept on seeing parents kind of 
kind of battling with their kids essentially. And I kept on seeing kids really fed up, kind of resentful, annoyed, cranky, and parents, you know, kind of frustrated at the end of their tether, but also really worried about, because they knew that kind of homework was important. They knew it was here to stay. And there's so many questions about, right, how much is the right amount of homework? Am I being too pushy or am I being too soft? And it was really difficult for them to know where was the place to sort of stand almost. And so I really wrote the book as a way to help them. And so I kind of say there were two intentions. One, it was to kind of help families be happy and successful. And I really thought, maybe a bit of a radical idea, that I would do that through homework rather than in spite of it. Because I think there's lots of information out there about how to make, you know, you know how to raise happy, confident, successful kids. And then there's maybe books that are about how to make homework more bearable. But I thought, surely they must be possible to actually combine those two things. How can we raise happy, confident kids actually through homework rather than actually in spite of it? So that was really the kind of the motivation. Perfect. Okay, great. Um, the word motivation is one we're going to use quite a lot this evening. Um, it's, I'd essentially say in my experience, it's one of the key issues. It's one of the hardest things to do. It's not the ability necessarily to do the homework. It's the motivation. It's the wanting to do it. So quite simply, as a parent, um, what do you say and what do you do if your child just refuses to do their homework? How, can you talk us through a little bit what your approach would be, what your advice is? So I think the very first thing I always do, so whenever I meet a parent or whenever I speak to them, you know, to set up a first tutorial, one of the key questions I ask is, so just tell me, what's your kid into? Don't tell me about their homework. Don't tell me, first of all, about, you know, what grades they're at, you know, whether they're top or bottom or middle of their class or anything like that. Just tell me, what are they interested in? Because I work on this kind of basic principle of the hook. And it's super simple. The hook is basically whatever your kid's already motivated by. And you can use that. So for instance, I was just before doing this webinar this evening, I was teaching a six-year-old. His mum wants me to work with him. He's got five weeks until the seven plus exams and you know, real pressure. He needs to improve his creative writing. And you know, we're doing it online because it's lockdown and you know, he's distracted. And rather than be, right, Ada, you've got to concentrate and you've got the seven plus coming up. It was much more that I know that he's really interested in in stickers, he just loves it. So I said, great, what you're gonna do is, if you do this work for me, I'm gonna create your own sticker. Um, it just so happens that his name is Ada and it was about adding to a story. So he came up with Ada ads and he loved that idea. So I just very quickly knocked up a sticker while he was doing that. Now he was super motivated and the idea of just getting this sticker. So that's one way, but one of the ways that I think is really key in terms of actually making it connected to what children are really interested in Let's say, for example, that your kid is interested in match attacks. And if it's a boy, the chances are that they are because they all seem to be into match attacks. I often, and that was the sort of thing that they might much rather play on their match attacks than do an hour with me or do a comprehension. So often what I do is I give them a comprehension that is based on football. And then they have to study the comprehension to work out how they could make some match attacks cards. The character, how fast should they run? What's their speed? something like that. So for any parents listening, I think it's listen to your kid and find out what they're interested in and try and make the homework connected to that in some way. So that's kind of the opposite to siloed learning, isn't it? That's the idea is that you, yeah, you find something that the child is interested in. It can often be, when I was a tutor, it would be a walk in the park. You know, you get, you're trying to explain some sort of biology or geography and you just go for a walk in the park, find a leaf and it's something physical, it's something you can bring to the, to the discussion that's not just a textbook and it's not what they did at school. Um, yeah, I think that, that, that sounds fantastic, thank you. 
And I've got a word here in my notes, which is tutors. It's something we never, ever had to do. Um, But as parents, I don't know. Um, I've got a toddler and I can't do this, but I I very often feel like doing it. The word punishment. Um, Mm. Is that in your book? Does that word appear in your book? And how, how do you... How do you suggest parents deal with this sort of the massive reactivity that comes up when a child just says no? And you've tried everything. Have you got, I know, I know that's a difficult question perhaps, but have you yeah, got Yeah, it's a word that's different. Yeah, it definitely comes up in my book. And I can see by the kind of slightly cautious way that you're introducing it, it's kind of this <laughs> bogey word, right? And I think a lot of parents can be like, oh my God. And I think that's the thing I also wrote this book about because a lot of parents are dealing with a lot of angst and you just don't want to get it wrong as a parent and you worry that I don't want to be doing the wrong thing. I don't want to mess up my child. So what I say in the book about, about punishment is that punishment when it is done as a reaction to something. So say for instance, your kid is not uh, doing their homework, they're refusing. And then you go right. And you kind of press, as you say, the nuclear option and go fine, no Xbox four. And there's always that kind of plucking out of the air five weeks, you know, or whatever it is. In that moment, it's not very useful. And, it's, and this is really isn't about morality. It's not like you're a bad parent for doing it. It's just that it's not very efficient or effective because essentially what happens, I say in the book, with punishment is that invariably, the kid might then do what you want them to do. Either they do their homework because either they want to avoid the punishment or you sort of, they're just so crestfallen in that moment. But really, they're just focusing on how mean mummy or mean daddy's been. And they're not really thinking about their behavior and they're not reflecting on it to then change it the next time. So, okay, that's fine. But then you need an alternative, right? That's actually going to work. And the alternative I suggest is that it's important to have consequences, but the difference is that a consequence is something that is decided beforehand. And for a parent, that means that that explosive act, when you yourself are kind of, you know, going into fight, flight, freeze mode, you're not trying to clutch at the thing. So you're saying, for instance, again, with just to give the example that I was giving before with Ada, I said to him, if you don't complete this piece of work, then I won't give you the sticker. Now he knew that going into it. And so when he didn't complete the piece of work, I said, here's the sticker. And I showed it to him and I said, but I'm not going to give you that. <laughs> he was like, no, no, no. And then, he, yes. and then he was like, I'll do really well. And then obviously I had the flexibility to go, okay, then I believe you, you've got a second chance. So it's also about being flexible with the rules that you have. But it's because it was established beforehand, I said to him, if you choose choice A, there'll be consequence A. But if you choose choice B, then there'll be a consequence B, which might be a positive thing. But, and that avoids doing it in the moment, which is the real thing you want to avoid, because that's not discipline. I think, I think the word reactivity is a really important one there. The, the idea that you, you really have to be slightly detached and you can see the problem and you can you know, isolate your own feelings slightly and just give the child something that they will understand on their level. That's not a a rebuff or putting them into any sort of shame or anything. It's just very clear. If you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And prepare it in advance. Exactly. Prepare it in advance as much as possible. And then I think the other thing I just wanted to very quickly add on is that if we go back to the word discipline, so I'm influenced by a couple of great child psychologists called Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. And they take the word discipline back to its root of, from the Latin disciple of being to be about learning. So if you think of the goal of discipline being to learn or to teach rather than to punish, then you want to go, well, what's my kid actually teaching from me taking away their Xbox or me putting them into timeout? Are they learning that actually, if something's not going your way, you should 
sort of, you know, shout and bluster and take things away? And or are they learning to actually reflect on their behavior? So if they're not really reflecting, that's, I think it's missing that fundamental point of discipline. And again, it's just about that rather than about good or bad or morality. Absolutely. And I think one, one of the reasons that a child might be sort of acting out a little bit and not doing their homework is because they can't, because they actually don't know how to do the work. And it might not be that they're feeling annoyed or frustrated or belligerent or any other number of things, but they just can't do it. Um, now, as a tutor, that's kind of your job and you're paid to, to help them. But, and you, you know, you turn up expecting to do that and it's okay to do that. But as a parent, um, you know, what do you do if you, if, you, if you see them struggling, if you see they can't do it? How much do you do it for them? How, where's the balance? What, what, what do you recommend? And you talk in your book a little bit about executive function. Yeah. And I think that might tie in very well to this solving the problem with the child uh, rather than doing it for them or, or just not doing what, what's, what's your sort of thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. So I'm sure as a tutor yourself, Nathan, you probably had maybe several kind of turning point moments when you realised maybe in your mentoring or something like that, where it really, something happened with maybe a particular student and it really changed the way that you thought or worked. And for me, when I discovered executive functions, it really was that moment. I'll explain briefly what it is because they're not that well known here in the UK. So executive functions are basically a family of 12 brain functions, brain skills, which we all use, you know, from, from baby to kind of senior adult to complete tasks. So they include things like our working memory, our ability to organize, our ability to plan and prioritize, our ability to keep focus on things, our ability to start a task and then actually complete it until it's end. So you can imagine even just that list, obviously that's gonna come up with homework, handing in my homework in on time, actually doing a maths problem and actually understanding all the parts and remembering part one by the time I'm on part, part four of a maths word problem. So what I found is that a lot of students who are struggling with their homework and might be underachieving, actually the problem isn't that they are lazy or that they are belligerent or that they are demotivated, it's actually that they're having some problem. Maybe they actually have poor organization skills. So they never actually have the right materials that they need to do the homework. So of course they're falling behind or they have poor working memory. So they can't actually remember, as I said, part one by the time they need to do part four or they can't remember the homework. And the teacher has a style of just telling the homework to everybody in the class. And that works for the majority, but for your kid, it really doesn't. And so they always seem like the lazy forgetful child who never remembers, but actually they've got, something going with their executive functions. So I find that parents, when they find this out, makes, it sort of makes a lot of things fall into place. But of course- Amari, yeah, do, you have a, do you have a sort of checklist in the book yeah. that, that allows parents to, because that I assume would be very useful because you, you rattle those off, you know them off by heart. I've, I've already forgotten half of them, but presumably you can, as a parent, you can start to say, well, let's rule out the short-sightedness. Let's rule out the, mm -hmm. as you say, the working memory problem that might be more complicated, but you can work out the basics and just rule them out and then hopefully yeah. whittle them down and talk to the teacher. So what we can do is, so there is a, a great website where you can find um, a questionnaire. So it's got 36 questions. So it's three for each of the 12 executive functions and you can fill it in as a parent for your child. And then you can even get your child to do it. And it's quite fun to compare. And then what that will do is it will show you what your child's top three strengths are and what his bottom or their bottom weaknesses are. So, and you might find that 
okay, great, my child has problems with organization and emotional control and sustained attention. And often what you find is that, I said those two together because they often tend to group together. So, and then you can actually begin to explore some strategies for actually working with those. So to go back to the original question, what if your child really just struggles with doing homework? Well, they might have an executive function challenge. It might be quite simply that they just, without having executive function challenge, that they don't know, you know, they find it too difficult or they find it too hard. And that's the no an occasion to have a conversation with the teacher about maybe whether they're in the right set or whether they're getting the right enough help from, say, a TA or something. I think and that's, I think it's that's useful really... to have those conversations. Yeah, though, absolutely. And sooner rather than later. I mean, um, I, I can, as we're talking, I'm having quite strong reaction to a child, I've, a memory of a child I've worked with um, for his 13 plus common entrance. And I, I was with him most weekends for about a year. And no one could really, to begin with, no one could really understand why he was slipping and slipping and slipping and scoring sort of 30, 40% on a common entrance paper when he really needed 60 to 70% for the school mm. he was applying for. And just before I started, and I think the reason I was brought in as a tutor was that the family had taken him to an edu educational psychologist and worked out that he had very mild dyspraxia. Mm. And I turned up knowing a little bit about how to work with children with dyspraxia. And then after a few hours with the um, psychologist, I knew a lot more and I was given some exercises to follow, which was really helpful, which is something parents could do. Um, with the Senko, for example, at school, so the Special Educational Needs Coordinator. Um, but you've got to ask, you've got to identify the problem. And as you, as you suggested, by bringing this boy down a set in all of his subjects, he, he went from sort of top set, because he'd always been really bright. Well, he was really bright, but he'd been put, placed in the top sets for everything. They brought him down across the board, and with a bit of confidence building from me, I didn't really teach him anything. I just helped him access his work and his knowledge in a slightly different way which parents absolutely can do with, if they're given the tools from the specialist, whether that's a tutor or someone at school. And he made huge, huge progress that way. And it was, it was so rewarding to see because he actually did become far more engaged with his work. So I think, I think that's in, the, the thing you, you, the only thing you haven't mentioned, now I've got to confess, I didn't particularly love school. I'm perhaps not the right candidate to be a private tutor, but until have made it my, my life. But, um, I didn't really enjoy school and I got on quite well with a small number of teachers. And in general, I didn't, I wasn't particularly impressed by most of my teachers. In particular, my English teacher, who on the first day of our GCSE year, so, so um, the three years before the, the end of GCSEs, um, I came in and sat at the front of the class and he, I glanced at my watch and he saw me immediately. And it's the first time I'd been taught by this guy. And he banged both fists down on the table and said, what's your name, boy? And I told him, he said, Nathaniel McCullough, he said, well, that's a very long name. It's a bit longer than your attention span. Why did you look at your watch when I'm talking? And so we got off on completely the wrong foot and I was terrified of him. So there's a bit of fear there. But every piece of homework he gave me, I, I tried really hard to do and I constantly failed. It was sort of six out of 10, you know, D, whatever. It just wasn't great. And my mother got wind of this and she said, what is going on? Everyone in our family can write perfectly well you know, write good stuff and all been to university and stuff. So what is going on? I said, well, nothing. It's all fine. She said, it's not fine. You know, you're 14 years old. You need to be able to write proper and get properly good essays. You need to be able to get good marks because you're going to go on to university. I said, look, just don't worry about it. I didn't want any trouble. So my mother's 
I guess in many ways a good parent, she went into the school, booked an appointment, banged her fists down on his desk and said, you will make my son work harder and get better grades. And he said, well, I could only do that with your help. <laughs> so he, she, she left that meeting with a stack of past papers for me to complete over the summer holiday with her help, which she wasn't particularly happy about. But after a while, we found that just sitting down and working together um, really, really helped me. And turned the relationship around with the teacher. He gave me a bit more attention, did some proper sort of marking, gave me a tiny bit of tuition. But the fact my mother had shown a bit of attention really helped. But it, it had to be a three-way relationship with the mm. teacher's involvement as well. So I, I think my, my sort of reaction to that, if a child can't do their homework, is let's find out what the teacher thinks. Let's see how the mm. teacher can help. And then how the parent can work with the teacher. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the, we're all too familiar with stress and lockdown and school closure and entrance examinations for parents in London, national or, or for, for independent sector, national exams, the 11 plus. There is, there is so much pressure on children. Um, and I know a large part of your skill as a tutor is your empathy and your, your compassion and your ability to, to make children feel better about themselves and to make them feel more well. Um, and a lot of your book, not surprisingly, is about wellness. What, what do you, advice do you give to parents if they feel that their child is overwhelmed by their homework? So they're trying their best. They've, they've sort of ticked all the boxes of executive function, but the children are consistently overwhelmed. What, what do you say? How do you spot that as genuine being, genuinely being overwhelmed? And how, how would you help? So there's a few things, right? And so it's maybe a little bit hard to say a blanket thing because I would always base that on the child and, and the particular situation. But there's a few things that come to mind straight away. I think one of the things, if a child has sort of internalized some sort of self-esteem issues, um, I often, and in particular, they're worried about being a failure or failing. Then I do get the parents to kind of, and we work together. And this is where that kind of triangular relationship really is important. Um, we look at, well, what is it, what sort of stories, what sort of ideas they have about failure. So a really simple exercise that I do that I love is that I actually get children to, I show them stories about other people who have failed. Um, there's this book called Heroic Failures and we kind of look through that and we kind of go, look, see, this person messed up and nothing terrible happened. And then I actually ask them to finish literally, literally one sentence and parents listening could do this with their kids or probably bedtime by the time we finish, but they can do it with it tomorrow. And it's making mistakes is whatever. And typically, if they've got a really bad idea, what will come out, if you create a safe place, it might be creating mis making mistakes is really bad, is embarrassing, uh, makes me stupid, and these sorts of things. And you kind of want to get, as a parent, try and get a bit underneath, underneath the, the surface of why it is that they believe that they're going to mess up or they're not going to do well. And then start to kind of give them other ideas about failure. Like, for instance, kind of make it the case that hey, making mistakes is normal. It's inevitable. It's, it's part of learning, actually. It's, it's showing that I'm stretching out of my comfort zone. And talking about stretching out of comfort zone, it's to try and help um, kids have a growth mindset, um, which I'm sure many parents listening will be familiar with. And, you know, growth mindset essentially means that you have the notion that all your abilities and your talents aren't fixed. So it's not like, you know, you came off, you came out of the conveyor belt and these are the features that you have. And sorry, but, you know, if you want to you know, be better at maths, unlucky because you're never going to be. 
it's much more, and it's about having Carol Dweck, who sort of pioneered this, you always talked about the power of the word yet. So it's saying something like, hey, I'm not good at maths yet. Because really what that does is it gives me an access to be realistic and not say, hey, I'm not trying to sort of Pollyanna it and tell myself I'm amazing at maths, but hey, there is something I could do about it. Maybe I could work with a tutor. Maybe I could do the executive functions questionnaire. Maybe I could get some extra help from my TA, anything like that. But developing their growth mindset so that they're actually willing to kind of face challenges and they don't think that something catastrophic is going to come is often I find what's kind of behind it when children are really struggling. And, it, and it's so important because if the confidence isn't there, of course, they're not going to be able to, be able to access their full potential. Thank you. There's lots that, lots that can be done here, which is, which is good news. Um, what do you think about sort of the formal, formal schedules and a little bit of routine around homework? Do you think parents should be relaxed and let the child sort of take, take control? Or do you think there should be a you know, very, very strict application of schedule and rules around homework? And, and then what do we do about holidays? Is it, yeah. is it the case that we keep going, that we worry about learning loss and preventing it, or do we have a holiday? Yeah. It's such an important question. Not only is it such an important question, but it's the question I get so often. I always get the question like, what should we do? Should we start straight away as soon as the kids get home? Should we give them a break? What should we do during the holidays? It's, I think, a question that really speaks to one of the, the pressures that parents have. And I think my answer to it always is that you know, there is no one way to do it. And I think if you recognize the fact that, you know, even for within the same family, understanding that, you know, the best way to treat children the same is to treat them differently, you know, to recognize that they are different and they might have different needs and different rhythms. So one thing I do say is, please don't have the first thing you say to your child as they walk in the door, what homework do you have? Because as a tutor, when I get that, when the parent comes home in the middle of our session or just as I've arrived, and that's the very first word that comes out of their mouth, as opposed to how are you or what are you doing? And I think you can just, as an adult, imagine what would that be like if you did that? It's like, you know, or I don't know, what's for dinner tonight? Or just something that you just feel like you have to do. So take a moment just to connect with them before you sort of feel like they're on their case. But from then, I think it's really important to give the child some say in when homework happens. So, you know, um, one of the things I say is to give them a sense of autonomy and you can give them some, uh, some leeway as a parent within certain parameters. So let's say for this, for example, you know that as a parent, it's important for you to be sitting at the dinner table as a family by 6.30. And you also know that that works with your schedules. Everybody's home from work and different clubs by that stage. So 6.30 is a good time. Your kid, on the other hand, gets home at four. Rather than insisting that they do their homework at four, for instance, because you think that's the best thing for them, you can say, right, you have got between four and 6.30 to do your homework. Now, you know your homework takes half an hour, an hour, whatever it takes, depending on their age. I'm going to leave it up to you and make you responsible for that. Right? I'm not going to dictate to you. Now, simply being related to like somewhat more of an adult and responsible will, will often diffuse a lot of the resistance that they naturally give when they feel like they're being dictated to. And of course, what happens then if they fail to be there by 6.30? Again, we get back to what we said before about having consequences. You make it clear at the beginning, look, I'm going to trust you with this, but if you can't do your homework within 6.30, then I'm going to have to ramp it up a bit and I might have to check with you, which I know you don't want. You don't want me nagging you. I don't want to nag you. I've got other things to do, but it is important that you get your homework done. 
And you can have that conversation with a child from as young as six or seven. And have you found as a tutor that different children have different, have genuinely different rhythms? Or is it more the case that they think they have and they might like to have different rhythms and they actually all do better by getting their homework done before six? So what I, I remember I would often be sort of called to some families for five o'clock on Sunday evening, which seemed to me to be nuts. You know, the, the, sorry to parents on the, on the call who, who, who do this, but it seemed tough that the, you know, the parents are likely getting ready for work the next day. Everyone's a bit either tired or, you know, the work is not what, what you really want to be doing. You want to relax. And the child is expected to turn around and deliver a great performance because it's everything about the weekend was, was sort of done at the moment. So you wake up on Saturday, you want to do the sports, get out, have fun. Saturday evening, parents might be out. So it's, 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 all, it's all pushed to the last minute because I think children might see parents doing the same thing. Um, what, what, what in your experiences, I, I, I never got much done in those sessions. I mean, I, I could just be, it could just be me, but um, do you think it's, there's a sort of a, a pattern? Do you think there's a better time to do homework? Yeah, I think, I think there's general sort of brushstrokes that we can make for sure about, it's not a great idea if you have a seven-year-old to be giving them a lesson after 7 p.m., right? That's unlikely to be helpful for them. But I do think when it comes to the difference between, you know, they get home at four and having a lesson straight away versus doing it at five after, you know, an hour break or even just 40 minutes, there I think there's a bit of flexibility because I think that maps on quite nicely to us as adults. So for instance, I'm a night owl, you know, and that's just how I work. My girlfriend is definitely a morning person and <laughs> she can't understand how it is I can be so productive in the evening. I mean, I can understand her, but I suppose the, the society is set up to be more of a you know, nine to five morning person, right? So I think naturally, as we grow older, we begin to, and we don't have people dictating to us, we find our own rhythms. And I'm sure from the people on this call, there are people who know that, hey, I work better, you know, maybe super early. I wish the day started before nine. But I think, again, there is value in allowing your child to discover that for themselves. So let's say you do have a pretty good idea as a parent that they need to get their work done straight away, but they're really quite insistent that they would really love a break. And then sure enough, you give them that break and then they don't get it done. That really is valuable for them to go, oh, okay, and then you have a conversation. And again, rather than being you telling them, they can look at it for themselves and go, you know what? Yeah, I'm not actually really good at starting 40 minutes late or 40 minutes after I get back. It would be better and they can take that decision more rationally. But there may be very good reasons why they do need a break. For instance, um, they might be just really tired from the day. It might be kind of, you know, certain children kind of even just have sensory perception um, overload. So a really busy day at school, they might need some time to unwind. Some children may think they don't want a break, but again, going back to executive functions, they have trouble with what we call flexibility or task switching. So they're the sort of kid who, if you let them play their Lego, right, even though they promise that, 10 minutes or 20 minutes will be fine. All hell breaks loose when we stop because they can't tear themselves away. And they find it really difficult to switch from one task, especially to a task that seems far less interesting than playing Lego, right? Yes, I can relate so, to that. So in that case, if that's the case with your child, yeah, then don't, you know, make sure that you let them get it done straight away because then you're not going to tax that already quite taxed executive function of their flexibility, which as I was saying before, often comes matched with poor emotional control. And that, that is really interesting, Amara. You're coming back to the executive functioning points, which are new to me. And like I said at the beginning of this uh, meeting, I, I wish I'd known this because I, I would have been armed with a checklist 
to go to go and literally look at the child, my students, with fresh eyes and say, could it? Could this be the issue? Could this be what's going on? Um, that I think that's that's really interesting. With um, with teenagers, for example, it, you you enter a whole range of different issues here because you you've got to bring in trust. I think mm. so as well as trying to let them call the shots a bit more, perhaps be a little bit more self-determinist, you, you have to, with a child, you can generally sit with them as a parent, you can, or a tutor in my case, um, and you can be next to them and you can help them. But I think with the teenagers that I've certainly like worked with, as a tutor, I was legitimately sitting next to them because we were doing difficult work if it, we never did homework well we very rarely did homework at that stage but if it's your child and they sort of need help um or they have agreed to do their homework it's most likely they're alone in their bedroom and you can you know you can say well like, let's leave the mobile phone downstairs let's leave they'll need a laptop to do the work very often um how do you get how do you build trust how do you how do you how do you learn how to trust these children as a parent i suspect um, because we've had it many times we, we also do quite a lot of mentoring and we get parents who are just at their wits end because they that trust has gone um and they don't know how to get it back because the child is just not doing what they say they'll do they're upstairs smoking playing computer games whatever and and the parents in some ways are scared to push them because they know it's a negative answer and they know yeah. the work isn't being done and they know it's a sort of vicious circle. Um, any, any ideas there? Yeah, I think that's super difficult. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate as a tutor going in, you know, and you know, a reasonably young guy is that they, I know that the teens that I teach don't see me in the same way that they see their parents. And that's the difficult thing that you have to face as a parent. And I think one of the things that was such a revelation for me is to understand that Development, de developmentally, in terms of brain development, there's two periods that are the, where the biggest amount of change is happening. One is between about the ages of about one and four, and the other one is in the teenage period. And at that particular point, they are programmed, they are wired biologically to push out against their parents, to rebel, because it's about leaving the nest. So there's gonna be conflict. It's kind of inevitable. Mm -hmm. So with that said, I think that can hopefully give parents some sort of, at least relieve the bit where they think they might be getting it wrong. Why is my team acting like this? Why am I getting this? It's not anything to do with you. And why, and then they might say, why is he so good with you? Because I'm not your parent, I'm not his parent, quite simply. There's nothing magical about me. He doesn't have that drive to push against me because he doesn't need to, right? So I think that that's one thing. Now, what can they do to restore trust? Because that's really what you're asking about. And I think that's a tricky one. I think communication. I say that communication is so powerful. And I think one of the most important things as a parent is that parents often think that their job in terms of communication is to talk, right? There's a very famous book by Dale Faber, which is how to get your children, how to talk so your children will listen, right? And it's this idea of like, how do I make them listen to me? But actually one of the most powerful things that you can do as a parent is to actually listen. Because your kid constantly as a teenager, and I had it myself, constantly feels misunderstood, constantly feels you don't get it. And you just need to be able to show them that they get it, which means stopping for a while and something that I, that's called reflective listening. So they say, I'm so, you know, homework's so boring or I don't see the point. 
And reflective listening is rather than reacting to that, and again, we're back to avoiding reactivity, it's listening and getting, okay, yeah, I get it. I get that you'd much rather smoke or you'd much rather play your games. I do get it. And you know what? There's a time when I was like that as well and level with them. And that's creating that empathy. And obviously empathy breeds trust. And what is the most yeah. thing that erodes trust is playing out these same old roles. It's almost like you're, they're actors. And it's like, I say this, and then I know you're going to say that, and I'm going to say this. And every night we play out the same role. Um, and if you break that as a parent, if you don't give them the usual cue, it's a bit like, oh, we're not doing our usual dance. Okay. They're actually listening to me this time. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think that's great advice. One, one thing I remember doing many times and feeling as a tutor, like I was failing actually, but it did ultimately work, was I would, I would try and see, instead of an adversarial relationship with the child where they really didn't want to do the work and I really wanted them to do it, I would say, okay, we, we are sort of a team and we have a problem, which is the work. <laughs> so yeah, let's yeah. both sit on this side of the table and put the work on the other side. And immediately you, you're, you're building empathy because you're saying, I can understand the problem. It's not, I don't really, I want you to do it. And I can, I can sense the joy and I can sense the, the reward from meeting the goal. But I understand that you can't, but you don't, you choose not to. So let's put it over there, sit together and try and figure out a solution. Part of which can be explaining very simply what's going to happen if you if you keep not doing this homework. So generally, you know, it's like the pathway. You could do your homework, suffer for 20 minutes, but usually, and you know this, after five minutes, it actually begins to feel a bit better. And after 20 minutes, you're flying along. Um, you could do that. And it might be a little bit easier tomorrow and it might be a bit easier the next day. And the teacher might be a little bit less of an ogre and it might all get a bit easier. That's just one idea. The other idea that, that really will happen is if you keep saying you can't do it, and you don't want to do it, the teacher's gonna be a bit more disappointed. The tutor's gonna be a bit disappointed. They're not gonna punish you, but they are gonna be disappointed. And they won't, as you said earlier, they won't give you the star, the puzzle, the, you know, the, thing. Um, the label, sorry. Um, but you basically put it out in black and white, very objectively, with no emotion. And you just say, look, these are the options. Um, what are we what are we going to do should we should we have a go at this and you can't do the work for them but i found that to be quite helpful just as you say really seeing it from the child's point of view and my favorite I thing about what you're saying sorry there my favorite thing about what you're saying is that you're not trying to get them to a place of one thinking that homework is cool right because i think that's the biggest pressure of trying to kind of go you must see it as i see it i think that this is important therefore my goal is to make you see it as important rather than it's going you're again kind of this idea of what motivates them is to not be nagged to have you off their back and that's fine if that's what their motivation is and you can work on a team towards that then that's fine if it still means that that's their motivation to do the homework of course in time we want them to actually sort of enjoy learning and see something in, in it for them but maybe that's down the line but i think where parents kind of get stuck and i think you've really got it you know, got it licked is this idea of, okay, let's lay it out really clearly. What do you want to avoid? And your current behavior is clearly sending you towards what you want to avoid, right? So let's work on a team on this. And if anyone listening now is thinking, I don't have time for this, or this, is, this isn't this is getting the homework done, um, I completely understand. I can, I can see it's not, you know, you need to perhaps at that point consider a move from a goal-oriented focus to a sort of more of a problem-solving focus. And we often, 
thousands of hours of tuition that I've done where I don't know, 10%, not that much work is done because you're just chipping away at this kind of resistance and this fear and this frustration. And a session could really just be that the child has sat still for an hour and opened the book and written two paragraphs. That could be real progress. Um, and I, I've worked with children where they're very young and they're very worried about what's going on in their lives. So school is in some ways a haven and they come home and then the forces at home are unleashed and the, the egos and the characters um, cause problems. And in some cases, the abs absences of the parent can cause problems too. And the, you, you know, you you're dealing with a child whose emotions are so fraught that homework is the last thing they're going to be able to do. As a tutor, you can sit there and say, I think I'm earning my money by helping this child right now. As a parent, it might be much harder because you, you're sort of thinking, well, I don't know how to deal with all this emotional stuff. That's my day job and I've got to do the homework. But to cut a long story short, I think what, what I'm trying to say is this journey is as important as the destination. And if you, if you have to send your child to school the next day with no homework being done, you can call the school and say what's going, you know, tell them what's going on at home. Like keep, keep this, if this is a repeated issue, keep the communication lines open and don't try and dress things up. And I, I don't know what you think, Amara, but don't do the work for them and don't sit there and spoon feed them. It's yeah. their issue. It's a, well, it's your combined issue, but share the pain with the teacher and try and bring in the solutions from the teacher as well. Totally. If I could wave a wand and just relieve so many of the parents that I work with from this guilt or this pressure of feeling like they're, again, they're a bad parent if, they, if their child doesn't complete their homework, like somehow it's a, a bad reflection on them. Because essentially what's happened with a lot of homework is that parents have just been given a second job without their, without their say-so, without their request. It's like, here you go. And especially during lockdown, suddenly parents had to find themselves being kind of, you know, teachers without any qualifications. And they end up being in this role of being, I call it homework sort of managers. And a lot of the relationship that does, the, the dynamic that does happen is between like a manager and a disgruntled employee. It's kind of what it's like. And, but that's not what parents are. Parents are parents. And so, yeah, if I could wave a wand and just relieve them of that, that pressure feeling like I must get it done, otherwise I'm not doing a good job and I'm failing my child's education, then it's like, no, you can involve the, the teacher and you should. I think one, one thing you've just made me think of is when, when is homework inappropriate? Now, in your book, you talk a lot about helping with, with homework. I'm not, I'm not sure if you mention what homework is for. Mm. And I don't know if there is a definition, but in my, my humble opinion, homework is, is to reinforce and to draw out the work that's being done at school and to kind of consolidate and to enjoy in, in a funny way. You know you can do it. Maybe you're stretched a little bit, but it's not new work. Um, and I, I've been quite frustrated as a tutor sometimes when you see exactly what the teacher's doing. They haven't covered work. It's not necessarily their fault, but they've got a massive syllabus to crack through. And they give new work as homework that's really challenging, that needs a lesson to introduce it. And the child, has no, there's no real need for them to be doing this much work. It could be slightly inappropriate. It could be off the beaten track. It could be the teacher just, as you say, using the parents in a way to, to, to catch up with the teaching. Not, you know, outside of lockdown and, and school closures and things, which is a very, very unusual uh, time. But um, 
I've, I've been on the receiving end of students who've been just given worksheet after worksheet after worksheet and been told which pages in the book to look at. And that requires involvement from a parent. And in my book, that shouldn't be homework. Um, so my, my point really is, I've said to parents, if you think this is wrong, tell the school, tell the teacher. Because teachers are not perfect. They are not, sorry, they do a fantastic job, but they're not all perfect. And you are, it's possible that your child's teacher in a particular subject is not doing your child a great service. I mean, have you ever seen that happen? Oh God, so many times. So many times when you're kind of, you look at it and you think, how am I supposed to get this done? And you feel sorry for the child. And I think, I mean, you touched on this earlier. And then as a tutor, when you know that you're sort of paid to do a job, and then you kind of, or certainly I've felt the pressure of, oh my God, I've got to produce a result in this 60 minutes. And yet I know that it's an unrealistic result for the kid and for me. And yet these are the, these are the kind of, these are the circumstances that I'm presented, let alone for a parent who, you know, doesn't have the training that we have as tutors, because it's obviously how we make our living. This is our vocation. So I really feel for parents and I really feel for the students. And I totally second what you're saying that I really think as a parent, you suspect that that's what's happening and that the homework's actually inappropriate, then you take the teacher. Because the other thing that we haven't sort of made really clear is that that's likely to be detrimental to your, to your child's progress. If they are constantly being confronted with something that is overwhelming and that they can't do, and they don't have that positive reinforcement of actually being able to get a piece of homework and complete it and feel good about themselves, that's where demotivation and that's where even you know, lack of self-esteem around their intelligence or around their ability comes from. Absolutely. And the teachers, it's the last thing they want to do, but I think yeah. occasionally they're the first people to, to create that problem, um, mm. totally without meaning to. Brilliant, Amari. Thank you. Um, I think we probably need to move on to questions. I don't know yeah. if we have questions, but I suspect we, we should find out if we do. Um, just quickly before we do, is there any, is there anything sort of burning on the tip of your tongue that you'd like to, that you think we didn't, discuss um it's all in the book obviously but is there anything right now that you're sort of top tip to parents or, or if not we can go to questions no i think let's let's go to questions i think okay cool sophie i'm going to ask you to um field questions in yes. whatever you want to great thank you well we do actually have one um that a parent uh, emailed uh to me earlier um about uh, a bit of a conundrum for you, Amari. Teenagers, twins, mm. um, who've not really had any extended um, in-person interactions with their friends since uh, school closures um, of parents. They've tried to ensure that they're healthy and getting together occasionally, but it's starting to show in how they engage with school and teachers. So questions are, um, how do you motivate teenagers, especially now... Um, they're perhaps involved in more remote schooling to pay more attention to their schoolwork versus Minecraft and their phone. Um, and again, probably motivation based. How do you help teenagers understand uh, what they learn now will serve them in the future? And how do you get them to stop whining about school and all the subjects they don't like? <laughs> <laughs> okay, go. So, uh, in answer to the first part, um, you might, I might need to get you to, re, to remind That's me of fine. different parts. But in answer to the first part, how do you get them motivated to do their, their work and kind of concentrate on that rather than things like Minecraft? I think it's a really difficult time for teenagers during lockdown because teenagers are social creatures. 
right, more than probably any, any other age. And so lockdown is going to be really felt very difficult for them. And, you know, being on social media, it's because they have a chance to be social. So I think it's about certainly not making that wrong, as in not sort of, as a parent, not nagging them about it, not telling them that it's really bad. But then I think, and this kind of moves into what I think was the second question, is for teenagers in particular, it's got to make sense to them, right? And I really think that this idea of trying to get a teenager to understand that it's important for their life future is not... I really think that it's a very, the most motivating or persuasive thing. I think much better is to kind of connect it to something that they're interested in right now. So again, why might they want to, you know, in a more immediate goal that they might have. And, and again, rather than me coming up with it, which is just part of the same thing, allow them to come up with it. So a lot of what I do with, with, um, with uh, teenagers is I do goal setting with them. And I think that, takes you know because we as parents or as educators feel like we have to have all the answers and it takes so much pressure going you know what maybe I don't have to have the answers maybe I could actually ask them and trust them enough going back to trust to actually know what they want so I would turn the question back on them and go well look what do you want to get out of doing your GCC English right now right let's look at the facts you're at a level four you you know is that what you want realistically you know and allow them to set a goal so I think that's a really great start. And the third piece was, was piece? how do you get them to stop uh, whining about the subjects they don't like? Probably a bit related to the answer you've just given. Yeah. Well, I think you know, there's. I think that often there's a chronic lack of 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 meaning in in schools. I talk about this in the book. And what I mean by that is that teens often think that school is very pointless because it doesn't connect again what they're naturally interested in, which is socialising and being with their friends and doing things which I think are are cool. So naturally they're going to complain about it unless again you give them an opportunity to find something that means something to them so as a simple example i've got a teenager who um was i started before lockdown and he was doing spanish with me and he really didn't particularly enjoy it but it was one of his gcc's that he had to do now i asked him what is he actually interested in and he was really clear that he wants to be an automotive engineer for which he doesn't need spanish so i said okay cool we're going to make all our lessons, well not all of them, but we're going to make a sizable amount of our lessons about cars, you know, about maybe not as narrow as automotive engineering because that would have really stretched me, but you know, about cars. And so we did things like I asked him who his hero was. And there's this guy called Joseph Koenigsegg who makes these luxury brands of cars from Sweden. And we went onto his website and they have his website translated into Spanish. And we learned Spanish that way and we did his reading comprehension rather than just you know, putting him like, like your teacher slightly did, Nathaniel, gave you reams and reams of past papers to do constantly, like do this, and it's always the same. It's like, well, my goal is for him to be able to feel confident in Spanish, right? What's he already interested and motivated by? Cars. So we started off by learning vocabulary with cars, and then slowly, slowly, you know, I did some other things which I knew as a teacher he would also need to be able to get a good grade in the exam. But by then I had his buy-in, and it wasn't, and it was about, rather than fighting against him and getting oppositional from the first, from day one, I was like, okay, let's dance in this. I know I want you to go over here, but let's sort of dance together with this. Cars, Spanish, cars, Spanish, and we end up where we want to go. So that's what I say, and they, they don't moan quite so much that way. Great, thank you. Can I just add, a, add quickly to that, Sophie? Sure. Um, I think that one thing I often say to parents who have teenage children who are really struggling, um, Maybe they have a, there's a behavioral issue or you know, a, fed, a massively fed up with life issue. Um, 
sometimes this isn't the right time for the academics and your your best path through this is to, to focus on well-being and i won't say happiness that's slightly an artificial construct that tends to come from everything else kind of working out um meaning is what's important and if you can help your teenage son or daughter find meaning in their lives and in their in themselves forget about please don't quote me on this i probably shouldn't say it but almost forget about the grades for a while um the exams are incredibly important but the, the children are more important and i think when the when the time comes when when everything is working and functioning they will fly they'll do they'll do their academics so well but it might be next year it might be a case of repeating a year or failing dare i say it you know you, you've used this this word Amari, several times tonight in a positive light and it's one of the biggest things that we see children often come to us because they have technically failed they haven't done brilliantly or they're, they're on course to fail and yes a, a, an injection of tutoring can make a big difference but that's not that's not the, the not always going to be the, the, the issue and the, the, the solution just letting children in some way fail and then pick up when they're ready to can actually be exactly what they need at that time and you know i speak from personal experience i did terribly at my a levels i hate i really disliked the sixth form i was at and then i went to do retakes and i loved it because i was a different person i was in a different environment i was away from home um it just worked very well and it worked very quickly and it set me on a very different path but had i been tutored to within an inch of my life and maybe force-fed and so, you know everything was so pressurized at that point i think it could have been quite a lot worse. So I think it, it's just to, to put things in perspective, there is always next year. Hmm, thank you. And hopefully lots of the strategies that Mari talks about does gem, do generally take a bit of pressure off. Um, we have a question here in the chat um, and some thank yous regarding uh, the advice for teens. Um, so thanks both for your advice. Um, so the question is, my eight-year-old has a lot of homework. Uh, some doesn't actually need to be turned in at school. My recommendation is not to do it. Otherwise, we're doing homework uh, into four or five. Do you agree with this? I think we should go to the homework guru, Amari, okay. to answer that one. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think definitely an important thing, and I probably should have said this at the top, is that um, you should definitely make sure that homework is working for you rather than working working against you or working you, making you work. So I think, you know, behind Nicole's question that I can see it in the chat is this idea of, okay, having a healthy balance and understanding also what else is important. Because yes, as Nathaniel was saying, the academics are important, but there's other things that make up a complete life. There's other things that make up a complete family life. So there's our quality time together. There's obviously physical exercise. One of the things I talk about in the book, which is so important, is making sure that we're not only focused on our child's mental intelligence. There's so much more that's going to lead to them being successful in life and happy, which is what we all want. So there's also their physical intelligence. There's their emotional intelligence. So creating time for that is super important. So if the homework doesn't need to be handed in, right, and it's not overly important, then sure. I don't, I think it might still be worthwhile having a conversation with the teacher just in case it's something that they're not going to check, but is sort of important for the consolidation because that is a part of homework. But in theory, for sure, I think, go ahead and do that. That sounds important. That sounds useful. Thank you. Um, and if anyone else wants to unmute themselves and ask a question, um, please do. Otherwise, I've got another one that was sent to us um, earlier, Amari. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so my daughter's absolutely, absolutely amazing at doing her homework. Um, she just comes home and gets on with it without any fuss. But getting my son to do his homework is like pulling teeth. He always ends up getting all my attention and I worry I'm neglecting her. What should I do? Yeah, I get this question a lot, especially when parents are probably unfortunate enough to have children doing kind of some of these key common interest exams at the same time. So I'm thinking back to a client who had her son doing the seven plus who was intelligent, but needed a lot of hands on attention. He was sort of the sort of child who, you know, he had to remove everything from his hands because he would just fiddle with it. Um, and then she had a, an older son who was doing the, the 11 plus for King's Wimbledon. So again, a really kind of highly competitive school. And she really regretted afterwards that she put all her attention into her younger kid because he seemed that he needed it. And the other child did get in, but her upset was that she felt like she had just neglected him over that time. So it's a tricky one. And I think one of the things is to see that it might not be that your child needs your attention with their homework even, but it might be that they just need your attention and to feel kind of welcome. So I think in that sort of case, being able to agree with that child, hey, there's, you know, every week we're going to have 20 minutes, 40 minutes on the weekend. That's just me and you time. And that's, you know, you can choose whatever you want to do. You get to decide, um, hey, do you want to, I don't know, go to the park with me? Whatever they want, right? And then you just give them that time. Now, that's in the case that they don't need the help with their homework. And that's just about restoring that balance where they might be feeling sort of, you know, looked over or neglected. If they do need help with their homework, then obviously what you need to do is free up the time that you are spending with your younger child. And that might mean that you have to sort of work with them with their their ability to be sort of more independent. And you want to start exploring with some rules about, okay, this is how much time I have available for you. And a bit like you were saying, Nathaniel, making it quite clear and quite dispassionate as well. It's just like, okay, you can ask me. I know that one parent during lockdown said that, um, uh, put her daughter at the top of the house and she always worked maybe three flights down or two flights down. And if you want, want my help, you have to walk down the stairs. And she said, it cut the number of times her daughter asked her for help by about 50% or if not more, simply because it was like, it wasn't worth it anymore. So again, if you can, if you maybe, probably what you've done is you've trained each other to be at your younger child's beck and call. So one of the things is to actually begin to sort of, the same way that you would have weaned your child off sort of breast milk, for instance, at some point, sort of wean them off your attention by going, okay, I'm only going to come two times during this half an hour, or I'm only going to come under these circumstances. And again, you agree that before, and then you try to stick to it. Great. Thank you, Amari. Um, So we'll just see if anyone's got any more questions that they might like to ask um, over the next uh, couple of minutes before we wrap up. Um, But I'm going to share with you all shortly um, on the screen and in the chat the details that you need to contact Amari with any questions and also the details of his book. Um, The first uh, three people to email Amari um, this evening to pre-order the book um, will get a free signed copy and the book is valued at $14.99. We've heard lots of Amari's uh, wisdom this evening, so if you've got a second to pop him an email tonight, I certainly would. 
Amari is also doing a um, four-part blog series with us. Some of you may have seen the first one, um, diving deeper into all these topics. Um, so look out for that. Um, and I will um, put a link um, in, the, in the chat function um, shortly. Um, and yes, if anyone's got any final questions, oh, Nicole, um, Amari's asking if you can send, uh, yep. books I, seen to the, the US. I see it in the chat. Yeah, I can send books to the US. Great. Um, so yes, there's the details, um, you need, uh, on the screen now. Um, so it's, I'm just having a look at the address, Amari at believeinlearning.com. Um, and if anyone has any questions, obviously Amari said that he's happy to answer those um, via email um, as well. Um, but unless anyone has any other questions, we'll we'll start to uh, to, to sign off uh, shortly. Um, and thank you, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us this evening. It's been a really enlightening discussion. I hope everyone's found it really useful. Thank you, Sophie. I certainly have. Yeah, thank you very you, much, Amari. And thank you, Nathaniel. Yeah. Thanks, and For those people, I did see in the chat, so one person asked about the executive functions questionnaire. Okay. Again, if you email me, I can, I can send you um, some versions of that. Great. Thanks, Amari. Thanks very much. I think that'll be really helpful. Okay, thanks so much, everyone. I hope you have a lovely rest of your evening. Um, this time next week, we are hosting another webinar. Um, about choosing a school, something that we help parents with regularly through our education consultancy service. Um, so if you are available this time next week uh, at 7pm, um, the link's on our website. Great. Thanks very much. Thank we'll, you. Um, we'll leave things here. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Have a lovely evening. Bye. Bye-bye.